Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. All right, we're going to close out chapter 6 today. We're in the fifth and the sixth seals in Revelation. And we are, we've been going kind of through one at a time with the white horse, the black horse, the red horse. We did two series, two messages on. Then the green horse last week, all about death and, and hell. And... Now we're getting into martyrs and terror on earth, so five and six. So things are progressively getting worse in the book as we go on, so praise God we're not here during this time. But as a reminder, uh, this is the only book that promises a blessing on anyone that reads and hears the words of it. So we're going to claim that blessing today as we keep studying the book of Revelation. And it's in chapter 1, verse 3. And it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And it's also the only book that gives us, gives us an outline of the entirety of the book. So it's in chapter 1, verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen, which at that point was the unveiling of who is Jesus. Chapter 1 is all about who is Jesus really? as our savior conquering king, no longer the suffering servant that came to wash our feet and die for us, but as the king. And so chapter one is all about the unveiling of that. Who is he? And then chapters two and three are the seven letters to the seven churches. Those are the things which are. So the middle part of that outline, which is us today. That's the most, frankly, the most important part of the entire book are chapters two and three for us today because it's all about the church each of the seven letters lays out the history of the church in advance and tells us kind of where we are on that timeline of god's church being complete and full we're going to look at a verse about that today and then the things which are hereafter so hereafter is after these things or after the churches are over when the church age closes what happens and that's where chapter 4 verse 1 picks up. So we are, we're now in the things after the church start in chapter 6 is when Jesus starts to unloose everything. Okay, so again, just as a reminder, because we have new people every week and new people online, the sequence of events thus far. The four horsemen do not come forward until Jesus allows them. And I got these questions also in 2020 when the shutdown happened. I cannot tell you how many people called me to ask and, and even newspaper articles and everything, we're printing it. Okay, we're in the horsemen of the apocalypse, and we're not. We are not there because we're still here. So don't worry about that. I um, mean, Jesus said, comfort one another with these words. It's not real comforting to know that you're going to go into that period of time about which the world has never seen trouble like that before. But the four horsemen do not come forward until Jesus allows them. Jesus does not unseal and allow them until he takes the scroll. He does not come forward and take the scroll until the throne room audience looks for a man who is worthy. 
and the 24 elders do not look for a man that is worthy until they are in heaven, and they are us. And so you can kind of even just work backwards through that sequence and events. So again, you need to satisfy for yourself who are the 24 elders, and we're going to look at that today a little bit because it's important. Okay, so we've gone through in chapter 6, seals 1, 2, 3, and 4, and today we're going to take 5 and 6, so we're going to close out chapter 6, and it's these three groups of seven judgments that come upon the entire world from Jesus. It's the seven seals, seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls or vials. Between the sixth and the seventh in each one of them, there's a break. There's kind of a pause where God tells you something else that's going on on the earth during that time. Between the sixth seal and the seventh, it's an entire chapter. Between the sixth trumpet and the seventh, it's four chapters. And then between the sixth and the seventh bowl, it's just one verse, chapter 16, verse 15. And each of the seven unlocks the next seven. So it's a very organized, deliberate book that's structured intentionally by Jesus. In fact, you cannot make an exhaustive list of the sevens in the book of Revelation. It's, it's inexhaustible. There's a lot of them that are intentional, and then there's a lot of them that are, uh, that are a little more hidden in the structure. But if you, if you want to go on a fun challenge, try to make a list of all the sevens you can find in the book. You won't get them all. I'm totally convinced. Okay, so the fifth seal, we open up in chapter 6, verse 9 this morning. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. So under the altar. So here the fifth seal is something that's in heaven, which is pretty remarkable. And it's, it's the people, the martyrs for Jesus, crying for justice. We're going to see in the next few verses. But under the altar, you know, a lot of people kind of miss this. When Moses was on the mount getting the blueprints for the tabernacle, he also got a view of the heavenly reality of that tabernacle and the altar. And so when you study this, it shows up in Hebrews 8, 4, and 5. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that they, there are priests that offer gifts according to the law who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished by God, of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. The pattern showed to thee. So here we have the altar. The altar that they carried around in the wilderness was a blueprint of the heavenly reality. And so Moses was shown the altar he was shown the pattern to make all of these things, which is why as we go forward through the book, verse by verse, you're going to see that there's a temple in heaven. There's an altar. There's all these things that Moses modeled and carried around on earth were a model of something that where Jesus is dwelling today in the heavens. So this altar, it's amazing how the altar is a blueprint of really our reality that we get to go home to soon. Okay, the souls of them under the altar, the souls of them that were slain. Okay, this implies that they are tribulation saints, and it's confirmed a few more in the two verses down in verse 11. We're going to look at this in a second. But the church is represented by the 24 elders in chapters 4 and 5. And, and we'll look at that in detail in just a second. But the Old, the Old Testament saints were up until John the Baptist, and Jesus talks about this in Luke 16, 16. 
So what you need to get a perspective on is there are different groups of saints throughout the Bible. There are Old Testament saints, okay, up until John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until John, Jesus says in Luke 16, verse 16. Then you have the church, the church age, represented by the 24 elders, okay, from Acts 2 when the church was founded until we're called out, until we're caught up to go home. Those are the 24 elders, us, the church. Then there's a whole separate group that we see here in the fifth seal, the tribulation saints or the people that did not deny Jesus during the tribulation who are martyrs for him. And so there's these different groups of people and they all have different roles and responsibilities in God's kingdom when you rightly divide the word of truth. And you see three examples of this from the Old Testament, actually two from the old and one from the new, but where the Old Testament saints do not get their resurrected bodies until Jesus steps foot back on earth, which is fascinating. Because we as the church, we get our resurrected bodies at the rapture, and we're going to look at that in just a second. But look at what Job 19 says. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. Okay, it's amazing that Job knew his Redeemer is going to stand foot on earth at the end of time, in the end times. Jesus does that, and we see that in Zechariah. He steps foot on the Mount of Olives. It splits in half, and there's a whole series of events from Armageddon until he gets the children of Israel down to Rock City, Petra. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. So after Job saying, hey, after I die and my body is decayed and I'm no longer here, I'm going to see my Redeemer stand on the mount, stand on earth in my flesh. In other words, he's looking for a resurrection. Okay, Job is. Whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. In other words, I'm going to get to see Jesus in the flesh, on the earth, at some point. He knew this. Okay, in Daniel 12, speaking of the end times, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Okay, that's why this this seven-year period is the greatest time of trouble that will ever come on the earth. And we've talked about that a lot, but, you know, we've seen a lot of turbulence over the last hundred years, over the last 2,000 since Jesus left, but we've never seen anything like what is going to come upon this world when we are gone. Okay, and at that time, thy people, in other words, Daniel, your people, the nation of Israel, the Jewish remnant, shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. In other words, hey, a lot of your people that are asleep, when this, in this time of trouble at the end, they're going to wake up. They're going to be resurrected when Jesus stands on the earth. And then we see this one last example in Revelation 20, towards the very end of the Bible. And I saw thrones, and they that set, and they set upon them, and judgment was given unto them, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. These are the tribulation saints. And for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, 
neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is where we get that it's a thousand-year millennial reign. Throughout the Bible, it speaks of Jesus ruling and reigning forever, but it's not until the New Testament that you realize there's really two different periods. There's a thousand-year reign and then an eternal forever reign. So there's kind of two different sections there. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Those that reject Jesus, they are not resurrected until the end of the millennium. So they're resurrected to judgment. And we see that at the very end of Revelation. So you have these two different resurrection resurrections here. The 24 elders. Okay, in Revelation 4 and 5, the kings and priests, the church. So again, we've got four visions of the throne room in the Bible. Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation. And they're all very consistent with these cherubim around the throne. In Isaiah, you see a reference to seraphim. But there's one thing the Old Testament visions did not have, and that was the 24 elders, because the church was hidden in the Old Testament. It's not revealed until the New. It was a mystery that the Holy Spirit revealed through Paul. And in 1 Peter 2.9, God tells us, ye are a royal priesthood. In other words, you are kings and priests as the church. And it's a very deliberate phrase that God uses of the bride of Christ, of his people, the church, kings and priests. Because the 24 elders, look what they say in Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. He's redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So there's only one group of people that's been redeemed out of every nation on earth. That's obviously not Israel, and that is the church. The church is made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue on earth. But he goes on, and has made us unto our God kings and priests. So it's deliberate. It, the tie-in there is deliberate, that you don't need to guess who the 24 elders are. They tell you who they are, and then God tells you, when we go back to 1 Peter 2, 9, who they are. The church, kings and priests. Okay, now the kings and priests, again, are in heaven before the wrath of the Lamb. So we're going to see in the sixth seal today the wrath of the Lamb. And God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God hath not appointed us to wrath. So in other words, he hasn't even appointed you to that time, which is the wrath of the Lamb. But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now when do we get our resurrected bodies? As the 24 elders, as the church... We get our resurrected bodies at the rapture, and it's in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruptible, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, the corruptible, perishing, mortal body that all of us walk around in right now, there's coming a time that you get your eternal body, your everlasting, immortal body. It's the same resurrected body that Jesus got after three days in the tomb, right? When he was resurrected, his body, he could come in and out of a room without going through the door. He, he had still needs, though. He wanted to eat. You never see him in his resurrected body not eating in the New Testament. So it's interesting. He's going to break bread with us in these resurrected bodies at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay, under the altar, the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. 
So the tribulation martyrs are slain for the testimony which they held. In other words, they did not deny Jesus, so they are martyrs for him during this time. And what I want you to get away from this is that your testimony is unique to you. And they have a unique testimony. They're going to have a testimony almost like nobody else ever to walk the face of the earth in that they lived in the greatest time of trouble and did not deny him. And so they're going to have a unique testimony. But you in this room and those online, you have a unique testimony if you are in him. And it's to be shared. And you're not to worry about once it's shared, what does somebody do with it? It's a testimony. It's his story in your life. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but your job is to proclaim that testimony now to get as many people as you can saved before you are out of here. You know, God radically delivered every one of you out of something in your life. Maybe he didn't save you out of something. Maybe he saved you from falling into something. But he saved you, and he wrote a unique story on your heart that is to be shared to glorify him. So your testimony, it glorifies the Lord, and it's meant to change the hearts and minds of those who hear it. Think about the testimony, the purpose of a testimony in court, for example. A testimony is to be an eyewitness to something. It's to be, hey, I testify that this event is real. You are to testify, right? And what's, what's amazing, and God really kind of laid this on my heart a few weeks ago, your testimony is to really encourage people and get them to know Jesus, but it also serves a dual purpose where if they continue to reject him, it's a scathing indictment as well because they hear firsthand accounts, right? But they continue to reject and it, it's just building that case almost in a court of law. So it's amazing. Do not be afraid to share your testimony. And I know a lot of us feel like, well, my story is kind of unique and personal. I don't really want to share it. There's a lot of detail there maybe that other people don't know. But I'm telling you, it's for a purpose. It is for a purpose. And you're not to be embarrassed about what the Lord saved you out of. It's not by your strength. It's by his. And so it's to glorify him. If you didn't have a testimony, you wouldn't need him, right? If you could have done it on your own. So the next verse. And they crowd, cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And so here you see the martyrs for Jesus anxious for justice. They are anxious to be avenged. And sometimes it's amazing because I feel the same way a lot of times. You look at all of the injustice in the world, and so often I just ask the Lord, God, how much longer? I mean, how much worse can it get when you see what is going on to children, when you see what's going on around the world, to nations that people are literally just slaughtered for believing in Jesus? And you think, how much longer is this going to rest or wait? But it's a form of grace where Jesus is pleading with the people. There is a day of justice coming, but Jesus is pleading with the people. It's almost time. Come into me before it's too late. And it's amazing. God gave Jesus all judgment in John 5, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And so Jesus is the judge, which is why he came forward to take the scroll in chapter 5. 
it's, a, it's not only a scroll of a title deed of earth, but it's also a sealed indictment of those that reject him continually. There's going to come a point where the sin is full enough that Jesus cannot wait anymore. Just like, remember what he told Abraham, after 430 years, your descendants will return to this land for the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. In other words, there comes a point where even the Lord says, enough is enough. And he knew with the Amorites there would come a point when he had to judge them and bring his people back into the land. So it had a dual purpose. Okay, in Romans 2.16, In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So look how they are judged. So all judgments in the, in the Son, in Jesus, and they are judged by his word, by the gospel. They're not judged by the courts of man. They're not judged by laws we try to pass in our Senate, anything like that. They're judged by the word of God. The greatest contract ever written on earth is the Bible. And once you're in it, you can't get out of it. Praise God. So Matthew 25, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations. Now, this is at the end of the seven-year tribulation, okay? We have the, there's kind of two period of time, periods of time after these seven years. There's a, about a 75-day window, according to Daniel, where Jesus is setting up his kingdom. And one of the events during that time is what we generically call the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25. It's where all of those people that survived the tribulation come before him and he basically separates them he judges them and separates them as the sheep and the goats and you're going to see this in just a second and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats and that's why it gets the name the sheep and goat judgment so he shall set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left and the nations that survive this t time period they literally are judged on how did you treat Israel during this seven-year period when you read on through the verses. And if it's any indication today on how nations treat Israel, it's not going to be pretty because there's a lot of nations that want to wipe Israel off the map. And Jesus will hold them accountable at some point, the people of these nations, when they make it through the tribulation. So Jesus is the judge I've been waiting for a long time for a righteous judge to sit on this earth and to bring peace, proper peace, not a false made-up peace, but the Prince of Peace. When he sits on this earth, there will be a time of great joy that all of us get to have with one another and with our Savior for a thousand years on earth. So the next verse, verse 11, and white, so these are the martyrs still, and white robes were given unto every one of them. Now, what I want you to notice as we continue to go through this, these different groups of people we talked about, the Old Testament saints, the church, and then the tribulation saints, they have different roles and responsibilities. The Old Testament saints we see are resurrected to rule and reign with Christ on the earth during the millennium. They reign in Israel. David is their prince. And we see that several times in the Old Testament. The church rules and reigns with Christ in heaven. And we have roles and responsibilities on earth. But then the tribulation saints, we're going to see later, they serve God night and day in his temple with palm branches. And so there's different jobs 
for these different groups of people. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season. In other words, they're crying for justice and God is saying, hey, sit tight. It's not quite time yet. And look why. Until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And so Jesus is literally waiting because he knows, hey, there's more of you that will not deny me during the tribulation. We've got to get them home first. And it's the same thing he's waiting for today in the church, according to Romans 11.25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. So this is something that the Lord does not want you to misunderstand. He doesn't want you to be ignorant about this. He wants you to understand this concept. Lest you should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So that fullness of the Gentiles, this is a term for the church. Just like the sin of the Amorites was not yet full, the church is not yet full. And he's waiting for the church to get full to bring us all home. And finally, when that one final person accepts the Lord, the father is going to say to him, okay, go get him. Go bring him home. Because we are, we're anxiously waiting. All of us in the, in the room, I know we are anxious to be home. I'm homesick. I am so homesick, but until then, we've got to occupy and get as many people as we can in the church before it reaches full. There may be someone in your family that's the last one. You know, think about that. Uh, there could be somebody in my family that's the last one, and the Lord, in all of his long-suffering and patience, allows this to continue to make sure those people get in the ark, okay? He waited. Just like with Noah, he waited 120 years and out of billions of people on earth, only eight of them got in the ark. But that's how long-suffering he was. He was waiting and waiting. Okay, they ended up rejecting. But in this case, there's going to be a lot more people that end up accepting. And we got to get them home. So the next verse, verse 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. One more thing I just want to mention on the fifth seal, the martyrs. What I want you to notice is that they are in heaven, but they have memory of what went on. They're anxious to be avenged. They are anxious to, uh, for that wrong to be righted. They're anxious for justice. Okay, they know what's going on and they know there's only one person that can deliver that justice and that's Jesus. So don't think for a second when you get to heaven, it's like your mind is wiped and you just are on a cloud all of a sudden with a harp and hanging out. No, you're going to have memories of what you did and didn't do. You're going to be, you're going to get to sit with the creator and he's going to tell you, man, awesome job witnessing to that person. You know, they didn't accept me, but hey, it's okay. You did your part. You know, it's not your job to get people saved. It's your job to proclaim Jesus. So here are the martyrs that proclaimed him and they are anxious for vengeance and justice and they're going to get it. At the end of this book, they get it. Okay, so the sixth seal now. And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. So there's a lot of earthquakes in the Bible. And in 1 Kings 19, we, say, we see, and he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, Man, can you imagine a wind that tears the tops off of mountains? 
That's, that's what we're seeing here. And break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Okay, so there's earthquakes that the Lord is not in, and then there's earthquakes that he is in also. It, it depends throughout the Bible. In Isaiah 29, Thou shalt be visited by the, of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise and with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. You see this all through, if you're sensitive to this throughout the Old Testament, you will see so often Jesus coming back and he's in a, almost like a pillar of consuming fire and darkness surrounds him and he's going forth to battle on our behalf. You've got to connect with the fact that Jesus is a conquering, ruling warrior king. He's not just a servant. There are two sides to this guy, to our savior. And it's one of the reasons why Israel missed him when he showed up the first time, because they were so focused on Jesus bringing Israel to rule and reign on earth, they missed totally that he had to die first. And that's part of the reason. In Matthew 28, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and set upon it. So there was an earthquake when Jesus was resurrected. There was an earthquake when the stone of the tomb was rolled back. Now, if you want to talk about the greatest conquering Jesus ever did, this is probably it. Because without the resurrection, there's nothing for us. He was our first fruits. And so you see a great earthquake even in this. The earth trembles at the might of our king. And in Acts 16, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. And so you see God using an earthquake to free his people, for example, in Acts. In Revelation 11, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000 and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. So God uses an earthquake to shake Israel to wake them up at this point. And in verse 19, a few more down, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. See, that I mentioned this at the very beginning. The temple of God in heaven is the blueprint, right, that Moses did for the tabernacle. So the temple of God opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. Okay, the ark of the covenant was modeled after the heavenly reality, and the world is looking for it today. You know, it's where we got Indiana Jones. Pop culture wants to know where this thing is. It's amazing how that's just ingrained in our society. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hell. So there's a great earthquake all throughout the book. There are great earthquakes throughout the Bible. Okay, and the greatest earthquake is yet future to top all earthquakes. And it's in chapter 16. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake. And you see the reference to this in Isaiah 13. I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. You can't imagine physically the earthquake that will happen when God just takes the earth and moves it out of orbit. 
And if you, if you studied this at all in mathematics and physics, how fast we are spinning and rotating, can you imagine the, the one that spoke it into existence just grabbing it and just moving it over a little bit? And it will be something that will blow the earth away. I mean, if, if all, I don't know if it'll stop rotating. I have no idea. I'm excited for us to be there in heaven to see how exactly God does this, but he's going to move it out of its place, and it's orbiting right now around the sun, right? You're revolving at a, at a breakneck speed, and all of a sudden, he's going to just grab it and say, okay, time to stop that for a second, and it's out of his fierce anger, so look at that. It's not out of, it's his wrath, and again, we're not appointed out. It's out of his anger. God is not angry at the church. He's not angry at you. He's not angry at me. He's not angry at his children, which is why we're gone first. He's not angry with us. And it's amazing to me how pop culture even tries to make movies depicting these great earthquakes. I remember the one with uh, The Rock. I don't know how many years ago it was now, but San Andreas. And you hear all these legends of that fault line in California. It's going to make Los Angeles dump into the Pacific, all these things. I mean, pop culture knows that this is coming. And they try to depict all these things like it's exciting. You know, can you survive during it? I'm just telling you right now, you do not want to be here for it, okay? Nobody wants to be here for this earthquake that's going to move the earth out of her place. I remember a scientist talked about this once. If you took every nuclear warhead on earth and you, and you ignited it within a one square inch area on the surface of the earth, you could almost have enough energy to move the earth out of its orbit. That's how much energy it will take to do this. Pretty amazing. Okay, in verse 12, uh, well, at the end of verse 12, the cosmic signs in the sun and the moon. Okay, the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. So there's cosmic signs all over the Old Testament about this day. And it's amazing to me how many pastors and teachers you hear talk about blood moons right? Oh, there's a blood moon coming up in three weeks. Uh, get ready for this or that or whatever it is. And Jesus uses them as signs of what's to come, okay, on during the seven-year tribulation. Look at Joel chapter 2. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. In Joel 3, you get the same language and feeling. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, Hang on to that for just a second. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people. His people speaking of Israel during this time and us, the church. We are, he's our hope. And the strength of the children of Israel. Okay, look at that. Look at the language in that. I love the picture of the Lord roaring out of Mount Zion. Again, I, I think back to, uh, I don't know if any of you saw the Chronicles of Narnia movies. Remember when uh, the lion roars, there's that scene when he roars at the end. One of the Jurassic Park movies, there's that great valley, and there's the lion in the zoo that roars at that dinosaur. You know, this is a different type of roar. This is a, this is a roar that is going to split the space-time continuum, the very fabric of our reality. It's going to split, and Jesus is going to roar from heaven. It's going to be awesome. But look what he calls this, the valley of decision. 
for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It's again, it's, he's trying to wake people up, make a decision. Your time is up. It's time for me to come home and, or to bring my people back to earth and to rule and to reign and to set my kingdom. It's time is up, the valley of decision. Okay, we see the same language in Acts chapter 2. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall, shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So don't miss the point that there is still salvation available during this time. You can still call out to the Lord and get saved, but it's just going to be a very difficult way to do it. So the next verse, verse 13, And the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Okay, the word stars here is astar in the Greek. It's where we get the word asteroid in our English language. Same, same kind of word here. Uh, the event is also prophesied in Isaiah, Isaiah 34, And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved. And the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll. Now, this is interesting. We'll look at these in a second. And all their hosts shall fall down, as the leaf falleth off from the vine, and as the falling of fig, of fig from the fig tree. So whenever this happens, the hosts of heaven are going to fall down. Now, we know later in the book, when Satan rebelled, he took a third of the angels with him. We know there comes a point during this time where he is cast down to the earth, dimensionally, he loses access to heaven. Like you see in Job chapter 1, he comes in and out of heaven, discoursing with our king, and, and there's a whole dialogue there. You see Satan access heaven a lot throughout the Bible. There comes a point, though, where God casts him down, dimensionally down to the earth, where he loses that access, and, this, and the hosts of heaven are with him in Isaiah 34. So, the next verse, and the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. I cannot imagine every mountain on earth and every island on earth being moved out of their place. Uh, that's got to be a serious event from our king. But the heaven departs as a scroll. Now, in order for the heaven to depart as a scroll, there must be another dimension, right, that it can be rolled up into. You can't roll up a two-dimensional sheet of paper unless you have a third dimension to roll it up into. And so we're going to look at the physics of that in just a second, but it's amazing. These are not just figures of speech in the Bible. God, God is intentionally putting this language here, and it's found all over the Bible. So look at these. The creation, stretching the heavens, uh, Jesus alone stretches the heavens in Job 9, verse 8. He stretches out the heavens like a tent curtain in Psalm 104. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in in Isaiah 40. He stretched out the heavens in Jeremiah 10. The Lord who stretches out the heavens in Zechariah 12. He bows the heavens when he comes down in Revelation 19. When we see him on the white horse come back, he bends the heavens. In other words, he opens them up and comes back. And you see that in 2 Samuel 22, who bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. There's that language again of darkness surrounding him when he comes back in judgment 
on those people. This language is all over the Bible. Job 26, 37, Psalms 18, 144, Isaiah 42, 44, 45, 48, 51, Jeremiah 51, Ezekiel 1, and on and on and on it goes. This is not just poetic figures of speech. God is intentionally putting this here to bring your attention to something. And it's, it's what Hebrews chapter 11 is all about, the, the faith chapter. Go read that and you'll see that there's a whole reality that we don't see around us. Okay, space is not empty. It can be torn in Isaiah 64. It can be worn out like a garment in Psalms 102. It can be shaken in Hebrews 12 and Haggai 2. It can be burnt up in 2 Peter 3. This is one of my favorites because in Colossians, by him all things consist or are held together in the Greek. Now, what happens when you break apart two atoms? It's the greatest source of energy on planet Earth that man has found. It's nuclear power, right? The nuclear bomb. When you can break that bond and you split two atoms, when you split the atom, what does it do? It burns up, right? And that's exactly what 2 Peter 3.12 says. At the end of the thousand years, Jesus just lets go, and it all burns up. And we see him create a new heaven and a new earth. And that's language from Isaiah 65, and we're going to see that at the end of this book. But he just lets it go. And what, what amazes me is 10 times in Genesis chapter 1, it says, and God said, and God said, and God said, 10 times. And modern physics has, they think at least they've found that there are 10 dimensions. You know, three and a half we have access to, three spatial and a half dimension at a time. A half because you can move forward and look back, but you can't move backward or look forward. So you can only go in one direction on this plane. But what's amazing to me is they found, they've been looking for what holds together the atom in quantum physics, and they think they have found what they generically call the gluon. They just make this stuff up because they don't know what else to call it. But they found that it's sound waves, and it, it just lines right up with Colossians, that by him all things consist or are held together. So his voice the sound of Jesus literally is holding everything together right now. You can do nothing without his word. He allows you to breathe. He, he's the one that makes your heart beat in rhythm. He's the one that holds you together as you are right now. He, by him, everything works, which is why you see later on in this place that is prepared for people that want nothing to do with him, where he is totally absent, they have no oxygen, right? They have no water. They can't, they don't bleed because the life is in the blood. All of this, it's a place, he's such a gentleman. He creates a place where, fine, if you want nothing to do with me, I will prepare a place where you can have nothing to do with me. And that's as simple as it gets, but by him, all things consist. So this uh, zero-point energy, you know, when I stumbled across this in physics a long time ago, it's amazing that space isn't empty. So God's talking right here in the sixth seal how he's going to roll it up. The heavens will roll up. Well, in one cubic meter of empty space, there's more energy than 100 million suns integrated over 100 million years. That's how much energy sits in this you know, one cubic meter out there that we call this empty darkness of space. And they think that's now where the energy comes from for electrons to keep going around the nucleus of an atom is it, it gets it from the background and it's Jesus so it's a pretty amazing what modern physics are finding about with the Bible 
Okay, in verse 15, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. So here you see all of these rich and mighty men on the earth during this time are hiding themselves because of the judgments. They are terrified. They, they're just looking for somewhere to survive. In verse 16, and said to the mountains and rocks, so these are the kings hiding themselves in the mountains. They say to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne. So they know exactly what's happening. This is the wrath of the lamb being poured out. And they, instead of crying out to the lamb, they're just crying out to the mountains to kill them from the lamb. It's amazing how man's heart is so hardened. I mean, they know where it's coming from. They know he sits on the throne. They know it's the wrath of the lamb. And yet, instead of humbling themselves to him, they're crying to die from him. It's just incredible. They're crying out to be killed instead of enduring their, his wrath. And again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, we cannot stress this enough, for God hath not appointed you to wrath. You don't have to fear this time. Do not buy in that you're going to go into this time and be running for your life and trying to survive and make sure you have enough food and water and shelter and guns and ammo or whatever. The enemy would love you to think that because what would you do right now? You'd be putting your time and your resources into that and personal protection instead of building the kingdom. So he would love for you to get you distracted by that, to be prepping for that. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with preparing for bad times. Don't get me wrong. God blesses that. And he ordains that. But you're not to prepare for this time. This is a very unique time. It's not something that you're appointed to. Okay, what's amazing to me as we go through this, and we just went through all six of the seals, is that the whole book of Revelation is a model of the book of Joshua. And anytime you see Jesus' name on an Old Testament book, it should catch your attention, right? Joshua is Yehoshua. It's a variant form of Yeshua. So Joshua is a variant form of the name of Jesus, and so here you have in the Bible an Old Testament book with the name of our king on it, which is incredible. It's incredible. And it's the whole book is a model of exactly what Jesus is doing during the seven-year tribulation. Okay, think about it. Joshua and Jesus, both are military commanders, dispossessing the land from people that are it's not rightfully theirs, the usurpers. The land of Israel, the Holy Land, had been usurped. It had been taken over by the enemies of God. And in Joshua chapter 5, we see that Jesus is leading the charge to Jericho, the first battle when they cross the river. And Mason talked about it a little bit this morning at worship with that new song for New City Worship, but Jesus could have gone in and conquered it all at one time. He could have gone in and just wiped them out and said, all right, Joshua, Caleb, come on, guys. Uh, the land is yours, go take it. But he didn't. He conquered it little by little. Step by step, he went through the land and led them in battle. And why did he do that? He did it 
to, number one, grow their trust and faith in him, right? To rely on him for every step of the way. Uh, Number two, he did it to prove that he's a conquering king. And it's also to give those people down the road a little bit more time to repent, a little bit more time to repent. But it's a, in both books, it's a seven-year campaign against seven of an original ten nations. Just like in Daniel, we see this final world kingdom is represented by ten horns, and three are put down, and the little horn rises up. That little horn is the Antichrist in Daniel, and we'll look at that in, as we go throughout the book. Same in Joshua. There's ten original nations, three are put down, so Jesus leads a campaign against seven. The Torah, the first five books of Moses, are totally ignored at the battle at Jericho. The Levites were not to go to war, and yet they're leading the charge with the Ark of the Covenant. They were not to go to battle. Uh, But see, Jesus takes the word, the Bible, the law, and turns it on its head. He turns it upside down because he fulfilled every single one of those requests those requirements. Okay, the, they were not supposed to do anything on the Sabbath day. And this, in Joshua at Jericho, on the seventh day, they did seven times as much. Okay, first, look what Joshua did. He sends in two witnesses. Well, in Revelation, we're going to see that Jesus sends in two witnesses. Same thing. Seven trumpet events preceded by silence in heaven. The children of Israel blow the trumpet seven times, and it's preceded by silence in Joshua. Same thing in heaven. We're going to see silence in heaven before those trumpets blow because woe to them who inhabit the earth, as Jesus said. The enemies in Joshua confederate under a leader who set his throne in Jerusalem, a false throne. His name was Adonai Zedek, the Lord of righteousness, a false righteousness. Okay, the same thing. The Antichrist puts his palace in Israel. We see that at the very end of Daniel chapter 12. So same thing, ultimately defeated with hailstones and fire from heaven. There's signs in the sun, moon, and stars. If you remember the long day of Joshua, kind of think about, you know, the earth, when the long day of Joshua happened, the earth didn't just stand still. Uh, God didn't stop that rotation. But you can get a long day if he just alters the, the, uh, the turn, the orbit of the earth, just a little bit. You could get where the earth is still spinning, but the sun is still in the same spot if he just alters the procession of it a little bit. Pretty amazing. And it's amazing when you really study that, at that day in history, all calendars on earth changed from 360-day years to 300-something. They all added time. You know, the Hebrews added five and a quarter day. That's where we get the 365 and a quarter day on our calendar. Um, the kings in Joshua, they hide themselves and cry for the rocks to fall on them, just like we just read in the sixth seal. So it's pretty amazing. The two books side by side, you've got the exact same, exact same uh, type of Jesus conquering the land, just like he is right now in Revelation as we're reading. So if you're here, if you're online, if you don't know the Lord, uh, we want to get you saved today. And it's simple. Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. And you can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. He did it all. He finished it on the cross. And if you have to add something to it, it's blasphemous. It basically says, hey, what Jesus did wasn't enough. Well, it was enough. The question is, what do you do with it once you are saved? That's the big question. So he wants to welcome you home to your forever place. 
And before we go home and this starts to happen, you can take your place in the army of Christ. We're going to ride back with him. We talked about that some last weekend with the green horse. And when we come back with him in Revelation 19. So in Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let us reason together. In Amos chapter 3, verse 3, God says, how can two walk together lest they be agreed? So you can't walk with the Lord unless you are in agreement with him. And that's how you reason together. You reason because once you get saved, you learn and you grow more and more in the word of God. And thus, then you can start to walk with him because you are agreeing with his commands to have fellowship with you. So if you need salvation questions, if you've got prayer requests, reach out to us online. Uh, We're here. If you're in this room and you need someone to pray with you, if you need someone to walk you through the prayer of salvation, we did that last week. It's really simple. And I've got one one thing before we close here that I just want to share. This is a personal testimony of mine, uh, just a piece of it. Uh, Someday I'll, I'll share with you all my whole testimony But this is just a piece that I wanted to encourage all of you in, that God is a personal God. And our king knew you before you were even knit in the womb. And in Psalms, it says that, right? Before you were even knit in the womb, he had you written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He knew you. He made a way for you. See, everyone gets confused by the elect, right? God chooses who gets saved, who doesn't get saved, whatever, etc. The Bible says quite the difference, the different side of that, that he died for everyone. And he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Before you were even made in your mother's womb, he had your name written there. Hebrews 2.9 says Jesus paid, Jesus tasted death for every man in Hebrews 2.9. Not some of them, not a select group, not those that only accept him, he paid the price for everyone, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And in Psalms, it talks about how you were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before you were ever even knit in the womb. See, he paid the price for everyone. The question is, do you accept it or not? Because in the Old Testament, when people reject the Lord, he has a very specific statement he says, I have to blot you out of my book, which means you had to be written there. You can't blot your name out if you're not written there. And so your loved ones that don't know the Lord, if you're watching online, you don't know the Lord, your name is written there. The question is, will it stay written there? All you have to do is accept. And once you accept, uh, Jesus is is such a personal king, and he does not forget any of your prayers. Not a single one of them. And we saw that in Revelation 5 where every prayer that's been ever prayed on behalf of him is sitting before his throne. We studied that in Revelation 5. And this is proof of that in my life. This card right here, I I put a picture on the screen. Uh, In in January 29th, 2002, in the middle of college, uh, my grandpa, before he died, got me a prayer box. And basically, it was a box where you write a prayer on the front side, and then the back side, you write when that prayer was fulfilled. 
And so it's kind of a way to track the footprints of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I was, as a kid growing up, I loved studying prophecy. I loved it. I, it was the culmination of all things to me was in the book of Revelation where <clears throat> you no longer have to wait for a righteous king. He's there. You know, a dad that takes care of you. And so this was a, this was a prayer I wrote in college in January of 2002. Um, Lord, I pray that your wisdom would flow through me, that your Holy Spirit would dwell within my body. Help me to understand the book of Revelation so that I may tell others. That was a, that was a prayer that, that I wrote um, 19 years ago, over 19 years ago now, which is amazing. And if you would have told me 20 years ago, okay, Matt, God's going to answer this prayer, but not how you think. Um, I thought that, okay, I'd, I'd have a Bible study. Mason and I, we're, Mason must have left. I don't see him. Mason and I, oh, there he hey. is. Sorry, he's, he's playing. Sorry. Sorry, Mason. Uh, Mason and I started a Bible study five and a half years ago. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mason, I love you. I'm still here, Doc. Love you. Uh, I, thought, I, I thought Austin just had like a little track or something. He just started playing up. Hey, I was in the moment. All right, yeah. Mason, I'm sorry. Not personal. Uh, but I thought that, hey, God was answering this prayer when he and I started meeting at Cracker Barrel five and a half years ago to study Revelation with four of us. And, Chad and Dave. Yes, Chad and Dave. And what's amazing, okay, I'll, I'll brag on Chad for a minute over here. We're sitting there studying the Bible. It was me, Mason, uh, Dan was there for a while, Dave. And, and Dan, and yes. Dan, yes, and Dan was there. And we're sitting there studying the Bible, and it's just, you know, here we are, a bunch of goofheads sitting around this round table. We had the same waitress for like three and a half years. Michelle, if you're watching online, we love you. And in walks Chad one morning, uh, totally out of the blue. It was, in, it was in 2018. I'll never forget the day. In walks Chad. I did not know him at all. But he walked in, and he walks over, and he's like, what are you guys doing? You know, we're studying the Bible, and at the time... Uh, not to get still too much of Chad's thunder, he asked him someday and sometime to tell you his entire testimony, but he was an atheist. He did not believe in the Lord. Um, he walked in, he, and we're sitting there studying the Bible, and he starts coming every week. And, he, and he's like, you guys are here every week? Okay, I'm going to start showing up because I've got questions, and I just want to hear what you crazy people are talking about. And, and lo and behold, uh, he gets saved that summer, and he's never been the same since then. My, so my point is, your prayer, man, praise God. Your, God does not forget your prayers. And it took 20 years for him to answer this one for me personally, uh, to the point where I feel comfortable getting up here and walking through this with all of you verse by verse in this book, because it's the greatest book you could study in the Bible. Uh, it's, the, it's the book that culminates everything every one of us in this room is waiting for. And if you have a prayer that has not been answered yet in your time, just wait. Be patient. Because Jesus will answer it in his time. Uh, for me, it wasn't time yet. In college, uh, I mean, I, did, I was studying the Bible. I was excited about prophecy. But, you know, it took, I'll, I'll tell you just a few more things and then we'll wrap up. Um, after college, Randy and I got married. We moved to Kansas City. We were there for almost 11 years, and it was in 2011. So this was six years after graduating. I was sitting in my house in Kansas City, and I was looking at this 
the Bible on my shelf, not this one, but a Bible on my shelf, and I was thinking, Lord, I, I have been following you and going to church since I was seven years old, and I have heard less than 10 sermons out of the Old Testament my entire life. And I was, I, frankly, I got frustrated by it. And I just said, God, you kept this word for us for over 2,000 years intact for us to learn it and to know it and for you to teach us. That's why I'm so passionate about 1 John 2.27, Ryan talks about a lot, that you need no man to teach you, but the anointing of the Holy Spirit teaches you all things. And so what I did was I just said, Lord, 77% of the Bible is the Old Testament, and I don't know it. I haven't read it. I need to know it. I need to know what your word says. And so I started, I committed every year I'd read through the Bible, cover to cover, in chronological order, verse by verse, and I would write down every single question I had. And I took it to him. First John 2, 27 was my, was my verse. It was that, Lord, I don't know this. Nobody, I'm, not, I'm turning everything else off. I'm not listening to other sermons. I'm not picking up a commentary. I'm not listening to other pastors. Uh, we still get to, went to church, don't get me wrong. But my goal was I wanted the author himself to sit and teach me. That's what I wanted. And he is so anxious to sit and teach you. And so it took me about 18 months the first time I went through it. Um, and God answered every single question I wrote down. And I've done it every year since then. And my questions have changed. My questions today still change. I still have questions. But my, I want to encourage all of you that if you're not doing that, God would love for you to do that. He wants you to sit down with the author himself and it fixes everything in your life, your finances, your marriage, your relationships, your children, uh, you name it. It is the answer to everything. If you have a problem in your life, this is the answer. It's not a counselor. It's not a better job. It's not more money. It's not more time off. It's not a bigger house. It's not any of those things. It is the one that wrote you in the Lamb's Book of Life before you were ever made in the womb. That is the answer. And Jesus wants to sit with you and teach you on his word. He will carry you through it verse by verse, and your life will never, ever be the same. I promise you. Um, if you don't believe that, look at the 40-plus guys that show up here every Friday morning who have been going through the Bible verse by verse. And my good brother Chad over there, and Ryan, and Austin, all of you guys. Um, so if you are a guy in this room and you don't come to Bible study, this is an open invitation. Come on. Patrick's been joining us come recently. On. So uh, with that, I just thought I'd share a little bit of, of my background. Um, I want you guys to get to know where my heart is and where I am in this and where I've come from. And I hope, it's, I hope it blesses you as much as it blesses me to look back on that from 20 years ago and see that the Lord does not forget and he wants, he is so desperate. If you've got something on your heart that you want to pray about, go to him and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Lay it at the throne room. Spread it out on that altar and let God take care of it. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the book of Revelation. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us. God, I thank you for what you're doing in and through New City Church. And Lord, I just pray that you'd be with every single family that comes under the roof of this building, every kid, every parent, everyone in this room, Lord. We pray a special blessing and anointing on their families that, God, they would leave strengthened and with a sense of urgency to dive deep 
into the word of God and to learn your character, to learn what you have for us in the future, and to learn what it to learn exactly what you would have of us in the days that we are living right now, God. So thank you for it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all so much.